Hello, and welcome to the FM Podcast. I'm Jen Fritz, and I run Fritz Media, a music publicity and digital marketing firm located in Vancouver, Canada. And this is episode number 21 of the podcast. Well, It's so good to be back for season two of the FM podcast. And this week on the show, I'm talking to singer, songwriter and producer Leroy Stagger. And we're going to talk about career longevity. Now, I've known Leroy a long time and I've worked on many albums of his over the years. And it's been really cool to see his career trajectory and the many ups and downs he's experienced along the way. And uh, we had a really great talk about his long career and how he's managed to stay in the game for so long. And we also talk about his brand new album, Dystopian Weekends, which just came out on October 15th. Now, Leroy is a Fritz Media client, but he's also a really good friend of mine. And it was so great to catch up with him and have a good talk. And I really hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Leroy Stagger. Hello, Leroy. How are you doing today? Oh, fantastic, Jen. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I haven't seen you in such a long time. <laughs> I know. It's been I like well for me though time's kind of stood still for the last couple of years even though it's, you know. I'm 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 always like referencing like, "Hey, remember when I was on tour last year?" And everyone's like, "Uh, 2 years ago?" Oh yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> last year. I know I have to keep remembering. I'm like, "What year did the pandemic start? Was it that's 2020?" Right. Because sometimes I start thinking it was 2019 because it seems like it's been going well, on. Well, I mean, the conspiracy theorists will probably agree with you that it is probably 2019. <laughs> yeah, the government, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get into that because it makes me angry. So <laughs> I'll just bypass that. So uh, you and I, we've known each other for a, a really long time. Um, and full disclosure, you are a Fritz Media client. I was kind of like going back and trying to remember uh, when we first started working together. And I, I kind of think it was probably around like 2005, 2006. I do know that it was when you were with Boompa. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that sounds about right. I'm terrible with chronology. Um, I can't remember. Did you do Depression River? I did do Depression yeah, River. Yeah, so that was probably 2006 um, yeah. that we would have started working together. Uh, did you do Beautiful House? I don't remember, actually. Oh, okay. I, I can't Neither even remember. I. There was one in there that you left me. Do you remember oh. which one you left me for? Uh, yeah. Um, was it only one? That's good. I'm. Uh, no, it might have been a couple. One. Well, was... I mean, there's been so many goddamn there's... records. Yeah. That... <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Um, there was... Uh, <laughs> um, Ken Beattie did a record, and I can't remember which one it was. I can't either. That's. I, I was like, yeah, I, was like I don't even Christ. know. I don't even no. know what, what. No, me neither. It doesn't even matter. You know anyway. what? <laughs> you know what? It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's... you got to try everything, right? No, it's true. You know, and I always say that to my artists too. Like, if you want to work with somebody else, cool. Like, I don't mind. There's a, there's a lot of publicists around. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it it's fine with me. You know, and if if you want to come back, also fine. That's well. It was also that period of time where I was young and. Um, I don't want to say impressionable, but it's always that that whole like grass is greener thing. And then when you've gone other places and, you know, like no, there was nothing against any other publicists that I've worked with at, at all. Like they mm-hmm. all did a really good job. But at the end of the day, I prefer to work with you and I like um, how you operate and I like what you stand for. And, and you've always done really good work for me. So, 
Thanks, Leroy. (laughs) I like working with you too. (laughs) I've sent a lot of clients your way too, which is good. Which I really appreciate. (laughs) I really, really appreciate. And you have actually, there was a, there was a time where like, I feel like all of my clients were coming from you and from Ryland and from John Wart Hammond. (laughs) Like it was like the Alberta contingent just (laughs) sending so many clients. Um, kind of got a little bit off course here, but we went back to like, you know, 2005, 2006. So tell me a little bit about how your music career started. Like, when did you start making music? Yeah, well, I was in punk rock bands for a long time. Well, not for a long time, but for a few years in my late teens. And then I we opened up a show for a band called Hot Hot Heat. And they that band seemed to really like me for some reason. And we became fast friends. And they took me on tour as crew and essentially just like a friend to hang around with. And then um, as I started making my own solo records, uh, they would have me open up some of the shows and sometimes they would back me up. And just touring with them exposed me to the actual business of music because, you know, in punk rock, you don't really understand the business, like $200 is like a lot of money for a punk band. Um, Yeah, (laughs) So that's like, you know, but touring with Hot Hot Heat, I, you know, met a tour manager for the first time and like saw what you could do with merchandise and and saw like good shows and really bad shows. And yeah, uh, so that kind of got me started uh, in the business, I guess. And, you know, I've just been making records ever since. I don't really know. Like, I don't understand why. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like this, um, what's the masochistic? Yeah, I guess it's kind of masochistic in a lot of ways. And it's like, there's so much to unpack with my career and why I continue to make records and why I've made so many records. And a lot of it has to probably do with, uh, you know, childhood trauma and (laughs) all those wonderful things. And then as I've gotten older, it's just gotten, it's, I make records because I'm an artist and that's what I've, you know, turned, you know, my life has, has directed me into this career path. Um, but yeah, it started a long time ago, well before I was uh, should have been making records. But I jumped in with both feet and still here. Totally. Now, the you know theme of the show today is career longevity. And obviously, mm-hmm. you're the perfect person to talk to about that because you've been doing it for a long time, you know, whether it's, you know, masochistic or not (laughs) you have been doing it for a long time and we all know it's like really hard to survive as a musician um so along the way i'm you know i'm wondering you know i know now you you're a producer and um radio host as well you do a lot of different things but along the way what are some things that you did to supplement your income as a musician yeah there's been a only a real a handful. Well, that's not true. I've always kind of worked since I was a teenager, you know, probably 13 is when I first started working. Um, I was a hairdresser before I started making records. That's how I met my wife. And that kind of sent me on a lot of adventures. I worked in a, well, I did stucco. I worked on construction sites for a long time. After I left hair, uh, I had kind of left to pursue music full time. That wasn't enough to pay the bills, so I was working on construction sites. And then when I moved to Alberta, I was uh, working in guitar shops. 
And uh, when I had my first kid, I wanted to be off the road. So I worked for the Boys and Girls Club with a at-risk youth mm-hmm. um, drop-in center. And that was incredible. Uh, but then, you know, music pulled me back in. And during the pandemic, I worked at the record store back in Victoria, where I used to work when I was, you know, right before hair school. Uh, so that was fun. I worked there for the summer, um, but quickly realized, you know, that that I am a full-time artist and, you know, that's, that's what I do. Um, that blue-collar guilt thing yeah. plays into it a lot, where I go, where I, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, like, oh, I need to find a proper career with a pension and these things. But at the end of the day, like, I'm just wired as an artist and that's what I do. Yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. And obviously not everybody has a privilege or the, the luxury to do this, but do you think it's better to have a creative job on the side as opposed to like, you know, waiting tables or whatever? Well, creative jobs are hard to find to especially that ones that pay a, a living wage. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of different for everybody. You know, I, I've been really, really lucky to um have been able to make a career at it. And the only times that I've had to go back to work in the last couple of years were because uh, not, you know, not because I was financially strained, but more so because I was just afraid of, of um, not having anything solid, which is absurd because in this career as in the arts, any arts, you have to be willing to, to, um, to let go of stability. Yeah. It's true. It's sad, but but that is that is very true. I, I always find like when I'm talking to people that, you know, don't work in music or don't work in the arts at all, there there's a number of them that are always surprised to find out like that they're like mid-range Canadian rock star or whatever that they mm-hmm. like has another job. And I'm like, Yeah, <laughs> they do. They have to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can imagine if you lived in Vancouver or Toronto um, that you would have to, you know, the cost of living is just so expensive. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's like a sad thing though either, you know, no. like I, I'm a, I'm a, what, what were you meant about like, what when I said uh, you have to be willing to let go of stability and you said that, oh, that's sad. Well, I think like, you know, I'm a practicing Buddhist, half-assed Buddhist, I guess, but a huge part of that is letting go, mm-hmm. you know, is letting go of, of um, attachment. And there's this idea, this great Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, she talks about positive groundlessness, about being able to live in constant flux because nothing in life is guaranteed or stable. So I, in the last year, I've, you know, I've written in my, in my notebooks and my journals about what it means for me to be an artist. And there was something I wrote about a month ago and I keep coming back to, and it just said, I have made a choice to um, to forego stability and financial security in order to do what I absolutely love. And one of the things I wrote after was, being an artist doesn't mean financial security. And then the, right after that, it said, it said something along the lines of like, being an artist sometimes means means having financial security. So it's 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 a balance and and you know life is uh short and interesting and and it's just kind of for me I found that it's a little easier to let go and just kind of not float cuz float is kind of in, incurs that I'm kind of you know not thinking too much about it but but just following the path a little bit more and and being open to instability. Yeah, I think that's that's a very positive way of looking at it. And um, 
yeah, that's certainly something I, I think a lot about too. Like, I think there's this idea of how we think we're supposed to be living our lives as opposed to the reality of life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the reality of life is it's never always stable. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it, there's always going to be something. And, you know, bringing this back to, to um, uh, someone who's been in the industry for, for as long as you have, maybe let's talk a bit about the, the ups and downs of a music career now. Are there, there are times when you wanted to just give up completely or anything like all the time yeah all the time this morning you know it's just but again it keeps coming back to that that thing that um i guess the word is vocation this idea of what is uh, what is my purpose on this planet and uh it rarely aligns with what i think i should be doing or what uh, i picture doing you know like my vision of my success in the music business doesn't look at all what it's turned into but I am successful. I've made a, a, a living doing this and able to feed my kids and make records and, and employ people and pay the mortgage. But it's not what I pictured it to be, you know, 20 years ago when I started out. But that's okay. Like that, that is life and adjusting our expectations and also like not having expectations. Um, you've worked with me for long enough to know that I'm maybe not even like the most like enthusiastic client because I just don't have expectations of how things should no, go. No, it's true. It's true. It's like sometimes I'm like, can we, can you maybe just give a little <laughs> bit of a fuck right now, please? Yeah. 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 It, it's not like, it's not complete apathy. It's what it is, is it's a, probably a little bit of protection, self-protection to, to not like have overreaching uh, expectations or ideas of how things should go. And, and, you know, I silently, uh, am ha you know, I try to, I am joyful when little, when little things come through and stuff and big things come through is always, um, exciting to me, but yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's just been, it's been a long time in this business and there's, there's certainly been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of victories that have turned into nightmares and vice versa too you know um i signed with a massive uh, industry mogul a few years back that was like i had kind of manifest i had manifested this even i was reading his uh, memoirs and um, you want to say who it is uh i don't know like yeah sure actually his name's danny goldberg and i was reading his book called uh, bumping into genius and uh, I kind of thought I was going through that whole like uh, manifestation thing. What was that book? The Secret. So I was like, just for fun, I kind of was like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be really cool to work with Danny Goldberg? And then like a shit you not, two weeks later, I got a call from my manager at the time. And she said, um, you're not going to believe this. Danny Goldberg wants to meet you. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> uh, like there was no, you know, I'd never sent any emails to to the company. So it was this really bizarre thing. And long story short, I ended up signing a couple record deal with his uh, his label. And um, it was probably the worst record deal I've I've signed and, and a really negative experience that by the end of it, I really felt awful about my career and about my art and really, really wanted to, to move away from the business. Um, yeah. That was about the same time that I had, had uh, signed up for the peak performance project and then got accepted to do that. And that kind of gave me a little bit of wind in my sales and then weirdly fair manifested that as well. Um, <laughs> strangely enough, you know, 
the with that that whole thing like the the secret um which i don't know if you're familiar I, with I am. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah yeah okay so there was there's a whole por- portion of it is like well write how much you want in your bank account you know like write that down and like you know i'm a I'm a modest musician artist, you know? So I was like, well, like a hundred thousand dollars. That sounds like a very respectable amount of money to be in, in some, a person's bank account. And, you know, like, God forbid I put like a million dollars or something. But anyway, so this, I put a hundred thousand dollars and then in a roundabout way, you know, there it was, I won the peak performance project and was a hundred thousand dollars. And um, lo and behold, I did it again a couple years later, just like on a lark too. It wasn't anything too crazy. Like I wasn't like obsessing over this idea of manifestation. It actually almost like spooked me out a little bit to go like, ah, it's too weird. Like I'm, you know, I'm not going to really do that. But I did, I did do it again (laughs) with a record deal. I pictured a portion of money that stumbled in and it was about right what I got paid for for a record deal and um wow <laughs> super bizarre yeah yeah really bizarre i feel like i maybe need to start manifesting <laughs> I, yeah and i haven't really <laughs> talked about that a lot either because i just feel like it's like kind of um it's a little like what do they call w- it on woo the, like woo yeah, yeah exactly but like i don't care if yeah sure, if it it's works woo, but it's cares? like yeah it worked for me <laughs> call me you what know? you want man <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Going back to the the Danny Goldberg thing, I know that um, yeah. during that time uh, you were able to meet one of your heroes, Steve Earle. Yeah, I, I want you to tell tell me maybe a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'd met him um, a few years before, and I love Steve Earle. I just think he's an incredible artist. He's an amazing songwriter, but as an artist too, he's he's really um, pushed the boundaries of. Uh, singer-songwriter and folk records, you know, he's made, he's incorporated elements of hip-hop and bluegrass, and um, I think he's pretty ahead of his time when it comes to the records he's made, so that's always been a big influence for me, and he was a big reason of why I started writing my own songs and playing the kind of music that I play, so I'd, I'd met him a few times, and the I he came through Lethbridge a few years back when I was living there. And I think I had signed with Danny maybe, but anyway, I was invited back to say hi. And Steve basically had said like, you know, why aren't you on this tour? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I proved for you to, to do this tour. And I was crushed. I was like, well, who fucked that up? And like, didn't, who kind of screwed, screwed that over. So I was like really crushed and I was actually going through a really hard time um, personally, but anyway, Steve said like, you know, I'll make sure that you get some shows down the, down the road. About a year later, he invited me to do three nights with him in Chicago, which was unbelievable, you know, just to watch him do his thing. And it was, it was this like huge feeling of validation. It was like 12 or 13, 14 years of pounding my head against the pavement in the business was just like I just huge weight off my shoulders felt completely validated and kind of like since then like I just don't really care care what people think (laughs) that's when it changed I will say as someone that worked with you uh I do 
believe that that is when your mindset changed and i could tell that you know it's not that it's apathy it's that you're just like well whatever happens happens and i know it's not like do a shit job for it but it's more like you know this is fine this is great this is everything it's just like it's almost like you don't really get excited yeah (laughs) well that's that buddhist thing the equanimity thing right like everything is just as equal as this and that and um I still get, you know, hot under the collar about certain things, but I've kind of set out to do, I, you know, it's like that weird thing of like just needing acknowledgement or that acceptance from your peers to go like, yeah, you're one, one of, one of them. Yeah. And, and Steve was, is my hero. So it doesn't really get any, any bigger (laughs) for me. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like after that, it was like, yeah, okay. And I also realized like, he's not a perfect human being either. So that also was like, was uh, freeing in a lot of ways for me. Um, But anyway, so after that, you know, the deal ran its course and it was kind of amazing. Actually, I pulled off a really good stunt with that. And I guess I could probably tell you about it. Um, You should. Yeah. So the, the deal with that, that uh, particular, man and his group was pretty awful at the end. And like I said, I was wanting to quit and I had another deal pending, um, a publishing deal to buy my back catalog. And of course I didn't own those records that he owned. So I'd kind of got wind that there was a bunch of digital royalties sitting somewhere that went unclaimed because they hadn't done a simple bit of paperwork. And it was quite a bit of money actually. So I said, I, I, devised a plan with my manager, Kate, who is amazing. And I said, let's throw a little bit of money at, let's see if we can get buy back those two records. It was a small amount of money. And I said, let's just see if they accept it. And of course they did. So what happened was I bought back my records for a small amount of money. I was able to claim that massive amount of royalties that was sitting there because all of a sudden I owned the rights to them again. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And then I sold the records at a, <laughs> at a profit as well. So I ended up getting out of the deal, making the money back and then making a bunch of money. Amazing. Um, and the deal would have turned out really, really good for them if they would have actually just put in the time to, you know, fill the paperwork out. Uh, so anyway, I felt like things were kind of on the up again. And one thing that I can't stand about people that want to get involved with artists is is to just to think that you can do the bare minimum and and also the reverse of that that artists that think they need a manager or a label you know it's nothing is going to if you're going to get involved or if you're going to be a record label and sign an artist like you got to do the work to get take it as far as you can um and they just didn't you know they just didn't even want to do the bare minimum every time i went to them with a with an idea it was shut down you know conversely a deal that i just had with true north for two records um and a publishing deal was fantastic Mm -hmm. and you know i know there's like there's with challenges from your side of things as a publicist, but I think there's probably challenges with every label. Oh, of course there is. Yeah. And um, so, but as an artist, like they were so good to me and they treated me very fairly and they did what they could until they couldn't anymore, you know, and they gave both of my records that I did with them a really good shot and love versus did, did very well for them. And 
Strange Path, you know, did what it could and then just kind of stopped and then the pandemic hit and all that. So, um, you know, that was kind of the end of our relationship, but I just have like still like really good things to say about them and really good feelings about that, that deal, even though that it's over. But, you know, like compared to this, this other deal it was just a nightmare. <laughs> no, um, you were like, the bar was so low that they just, yeah. <laughs> they didn't really have to do too much. Right. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, and, but they did, they did, they did go out of their way and, and I feel like, um, they are a proper label for better or worse. But, you know, like I was going to say, like a lot of artists come to me and go like, oh, can you like help me find a manager? My response is always like, well, are you so busy that you can't manage yourself? Mm-hmm. Like you have so much work that, you know, like you can't manage yourself. Oh, no, I don't have any work. That's why I need a manager. Well, so it doesn't really work like that. Um, no, you know, no. You know? What's, what we always say, what, what is it? Like whatever the going rate is, 20% of nothing is still nothing or 10, 10% of nothing is still nothing. So, yeah, it's like if you aren't generating any income. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And and I mean, if you're a young, established, like a brand new artist and you found somebody that's young and wants to manage you and come up with you, that's a different story because yeah. then you're building it together. Yeah. But um, unless you have something off to offer a deal, a record label or a manager, and what I mean by is something to offer is income, money for them because they don't, you know, they don't pay their mortgage on <laughs> They don't work for either. free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's so, totally true. Yeah. So... So I've kind of seen it all. I've had, I don't know, four or five managers over the years and um, and a lot of, yeah, a lot of ups and downs and I don't know, probably six or seven record deals, maybe internationally and, and domestically. So yeah. yeah, I've kind of seen it all. You've been, you've been around the block. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's bring it back to, uh, you just released a, a brand new album called Dystopian Weekends on mm-hmm. October 15th. It is your 11th full length album. Uh, is is that? that, is that, I, I keep saying that in the press and Kate, I, and Kate told me it is. And then I went back and I'm like, cause I, I felt like we were wrong. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's probably 12 or 13 maybe, yeah. but I don't know. I, don't I think know. for full length albums, it's 11, but if you include like EPs, EPs and the and live stuff. Other projects too, like, you know, yeah. Easton Steger Phillips records and stuff. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. But anyway, I felt confident saying it until I said it to you, which and then I did not. But uh, do you ever like stop and and think like, holy shit, how did that happen? Like, how how do I have that many albums? Well, no. Sometimes I go like, oh, I wish I hadn't made uh, some of those. But, you know, I feel like honestly, I feel like I started I found my own voice with Love Versus. Yeah. That was kind of the first record where I broke away from what I thought I was supposed to be doing and decided to like to really find my own voice. Um, and I think that so I would say that for me, it feels like my career actually really started with with that record. And I know that's weird. And I know that there's people that, you know, love older records than that and, and that, that are attached to certain records of mine before then. But I feel like my my true self really kind of comes about on Love Versus and the records after that. I, I totally agree. I, I feel like, like I 100% know what you're saying because I noticed a shift with that record uh, just with your songwriting and all of the records since have felt more you and more authentic Yeah, and more like I, I know what your voice is. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I'm not trying to emulate my heroes at all. 
And, you know, that, that's not always a bad thing to do that. I think that's kind of what you need to do, actually, to find your own voice. Yeah. Um, and just for me, that just happened to be documented through the whole time, right? No, it's true. You have, <laughs> this has actually reminded me, you're kind of like, uh, you're like Mark Maron, basically, because, right. <laughs> because you know, or any comedian, I guess, you, you start out and you're trying to find your voice and then yeah. you find your voice and then you become the thing that you didn't even know was going to be the thing. That's right. Right? Well, yeah. And actually, um, I love that Marin comparison. I've never thought of it like that way, but really, you know, started, was mediocre. Because he so was just emulating, right? Yeah, exactly. Fell down, you know, substance issues and recovery. Um, fucking hates Danny Goldberg. Yeah, uh, see? <laughs> Um, and, and I don't hate, I don't hate Danny Goldberg. That's not, not what I mean by that. But, um, I just, I have issues with, with, with that man, I suppose. And I obviously Mark Marin does too, because I always hear about it in his, um, in his, his Yeah, he uh, has episodes. mentioned it a few yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the exact same thing too, that, I, that I had problems with. It just was this demeaning, holier than thou attitude. But with this coupled with this, like, Oh, I'm friends with Ram Das and I'm over in Ram, you know, it's just like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's like maybe if you practice what you preached, but <laughs> but yeah, and then kind of like coming through trauma and and just discovering what, you know, what feeds his soul and it's the same for me and and what feeds my soul is is making records that uh I find to be like re- I have to when I'm writing now, it's like got to be a hundred percent truthful. There cannot be any sort of fluff or bullshit in there because something's happened. I think I think a lot of therapy and practice in Buddhism has just not allowed for me to. I have to be honest with myself about everything. Yeah, um, and sometimes like you don't know what that truth is and you have to discover that you know what i mean like you have to really dig deep to figure out what what is the truth what do i believe about this i can't be i don't know it's hard to like bullshit anymore no you can't i I think that happens with age too where you know yourself more and you know not everybody but most people have done some self-reflection had a fair amount of therapy a little more self-aware and also a little more forgiving yeah right like it's not like you're you're trying to be this perfect thing you're just like well this is how it is this is who i am that's right i'm doing the best i can yeah like i've forgiven myself for um the pain and and shit that I've caused people over the years, and and mostly the pain and shit that I've caused for myself. I've I've just as soon as I've learned to forgive myself for that, and you know, and yeah, those of us who are, I don't know. It sounds like maybe it's a bit of a cop out, but to like to understand that I was traumatized and suffering from PTSD, it put things in perspective and allowed me to go like, oh, okay. You know, not that it excuses behavior, but it 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 shines a light on why I acted a certain way. And like I said, the most damage that I caused was to myself. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's generally what happens. I find yeah. obviously there is collateral in those things, but sure, we tend to be hardest on ourselves and you know doing things that harm us. That's right. Because I've been working with you for a long time, I just have to, you know, say to you, if I haven't already, that I feel like Dystopian Weekends is one of the best things that you've ever made. And it has made me so, so excited 
for more. Like it has just really? made me feel feel like I because I truly like not to blow smoke up your ass or whatever, but I just really feel like you have hit a stride in your in your songwriting. Yeah. Your musicianship, your singing, everything. It just really feels like you're at the top of your game. Oh good. And yeah, it's yeah. funny because the dystopian weekends like was a real selfish record. Um and I say that in like uh not in a, a bad way. It was it was out of necessity um coming out of Strange Path, which didn't do as well as it, I thought it should have, mm-hmm. which is fine too, because that's you know, usually how it goes. So I thought, well, I want to make a record for me. Like I want to make a record that emulates the records, not emulates, but that has a feeling of the records that I'm listening to, which are, you know, a lot of seventies singer songwriters and um, a lot of early Bob Dylan records. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to do this for fun. And as I went through it, you know, like I remember Scott Smith coming to me during the recording of that record and he was just like, man, that song, like, how do you love with a broken heart? He's like, it just made me cry. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess there's some songs on this record that maybe <laughs> I hadn't really thought of as being very personal. But, you know, Ventura is a very personal song. And I have a hard time playing that or telling the story about that song without choking up. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe like, maybe this is... Maybe maybe this is how I make records from now on, you know, do what I want to do. <laughs> well, I like it. I, yeah. I think it's I think it's it's a great idea. Now, I was uh, just talking to your manager Kate this morning, and uh, she told me that you are already on to the next uh, f- for another album <laughs> and are planning to release an, uh, another one. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Have you not heard anything from that one? I haven't yet. So if you would like to send me anything, I'd be happy to hear it. Yeah. So we, we cut a record during COVID, I guess, in the wintertime uh, last winter. And it was me and Indio Saravanja in my studio here at the house. And it was like the peak of, you know, lockdown time. So it was like spooky. And, but yeah, I'd, I had uh, enough songs. Um, I had a group of songs that, were around and yeah made another record but i i mean i don't know i don't i never really know how to like how good they are i feel like it's probably my best writing and it's also like a return production wise i don't know like i get lumped in as like an americana artist a lot right but i don't think i've ever really made an americana record per se yeah i wouldn't say that i i feel like um what I want to hear from you and what I think you're capable of is like moving more in like the Tom Petty sort of like yeah. that sort of vibe. Do you know what I mean? Well, then, like, yeah, yeah. And that like, that's exactly what this next record is. Um, you know, Dystopian Weekends was made in March of 2020. So I'm like, well, beyond that. It's just coming out now, but you know, like I'm well past that. <laughs> I think in that's my why you're apathetic emotions. all the time. That's what I think. I think it's because your mind is always like, always past it. So by the time the album comes out, you're just like yeah. already like over here. Yeah. Well, that's been a big problem about with my career and making records and releasing them. Like I really, what I really, really, really want is to be able to like make records and have them come out two months later. Yeah. Like I really want that. And I've, I've told that to Kate and obviously like that's just not possible right now. Uh, but anyway, so I've made this record and that's exactly, so it's, I think it's going to be tentatively called Alberta stars. <gasps> 
Um, and it's, it, it's, it's exactly that. It was like, I was obsessed with that reissue of Tom Petty's wildflowers. Oh, and, which is um, so good. Yeah. It's incredible. Like that second record that came out was just like mind blowing. That song, Harry Green was just stunning to me. And it's like, you know, when I say I want to emulate these records that I'm in love with at the time, it doesn't mean like I want to just copy them and rip them off. What it means is I want to get down to the essence of what they're, yeah, the essence of what the artist is writing about and also like the essence of what the production feel is on that. And, um, And that's what I did with this Alberta Stars. And I think the one of the, best songs that I've written or one of my favorite songs that I've written is called St. Patricia. And it's a, no, a nod to Patti Smith, who is oh, amazing. Um, one of my, my heroes now. And I just, I'm really excited about that song to come out because I just adore her and feel like it was like a real gift to, to be able to write a tune like that for somebody who I, I really admire. That's awesome. Alberta stars. Yeah, so, I love that. Yeah. So it's a lot, it's like, it's more of like a roots rock record in the, you know, Tom, I, like the two records that I was really, well, there's three rainy day music by the Jayhawks, Tom Petty's wildflowers and Lucinda Williams car wheels on the gravel road. <laughs> oh. And so, yeah. So those three records I melded together production style wise. And, you know, like it's kind of like not a hip thing to do. You know what I mean? It's like, the hip thing right now is like, well, make it sound like the war on drugs and, and strand of Oaks and this and that. And I'm just like, no, fuck that. I want to go back to like the records that I love and just do it. But I would say that even like way. strand of Oaks sound and war on drugs sound best when they sound like the boss, like to be, to be <laughs> fair. So we're all emulating someone. <laughs> That's right. There's nothing original in this anymore no. either too, you know? So it's like when we put that preciousness away, of course there's like, I think it's important to like push boundaries and incorporate different production styles and different music. I think that's incredibly important. Like people should listen to jazz records and understand why they sound the way they do. And for me, I'm like, I want to incorporate, you know, why the drums sound amazing on, on my favorite jazz records and turn that into singer songwriter records. I, I try to do that a lot with the records that I produce, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's how you go into it. You're like, you yeah. have to have like those touchstones when you go into recording something, right? Yeah. And they're not touchstones that go like, okay, now we're going to make it sound like this. It's just, you just put it in your brain and let it roll around in there and mix with the other stuff. And it just kind of seeps into the production without totally. thinking about it too much. There's nothing worse than referencing a song before you start playing something. <laughs> I can't stand that. You know, I used to do that in the studio all the time. But now it's like, no, why would you do that? Let's see what's going to happen first. And we've already got those other things in our brain. We already know how the snare sounds on wildflowers. You shouldn't have to reference it, you know? No, totally. Just, you know, have it in your head. Feel the vibes. That's what you're trying to get, right? Like obsess over those things already so that you don't have to. The great thing is, is like, you know that thing when you like think that you, you think of a thing and you like picture it in your mind on how it is. And then you go back and listen to like, that happens to me a lot with like sounds of drums. Like I'm obsessed with drums (laughs) as a producer and a, and a recorder recordist. Um, So I'm like, Oh, you know, like the snare sound from wildflowers and Oh, okay. I think I know what you mean. And then you go back and listen to it like the next day or the day after and you pull it up and it sounds nothing of like how you pictured it in your head. You know, that Wildflowers record is is an amazing record, but it, actually, if you listen to 
the original mix of it and you put it up um, on some good speakers, you'd be shocked at how bright and thin that record sounds. Yeah. But in our mind, it's the it's the epitome of warmth and it's and it's all these things. And it is to some degree. But from a technical sound sound aspect, when I pulled it up, I was like, oh Jesus Christ, this sounds terrible. Like this is not, you know, not what I thought it was at all. But it, it's just funny how your mind uh you know, there's it's not. Um, no, it's not. Yeah, your idea of it is not what it was, which is exactly basically happens to me my whole life. But yeah, I I feel like um also albums like that, like albums that are just that you love. Like I loved Lucinda. I love Wildflowers. It's more just a feeling. Absolutely. Uh, like obviously the production is amazing, all of those things, but it's this this feeling it gives you. And I don't know if that's maybe nostalgia or whatever, because I listened to them in my formative years, but it's, it, I just, I put those on and it's just cozy and I f- fucking that's, love it. That's, I think that's, I think you just hit the nail on the head. There's an intimacy and there's a coziness to those records that they're, they do rock. You know, you think of a tune like, um, that Tom Petty tune, like, let me run with you tonight. You think of that song and it's like, oh, it's a big pot smoking like rock anthem. But actually it's like very intimate. You know, you think of his voice on that song and he's like right in your face and he's singing very quietly. Let's get to the point. It's just like, it's like Mm -hmm. there's something, um, there's an intimacy to that, to that Lucinda Williams record and that Jayhawks record too, which is just absolutely brilliant. Love it. Yeah, no, exactly. That it's just like for me, it's like okay, strip away all the bullshit and get to the intimacy, get to that comfortability. And for me too, like the last couple of years, and and Dystopian Weekend is a prime example of it. Is that like I just don't have the voice anymore. Like I have, I, I'm my oct- I'm down like a couple octaves. So the quieter I can sing, the more comfortable I'm going to sound, and the more in tune it's going to sound. Yeah that's my voice now. You know what I mean? It's like, I found my voice. It's not trying to belt out. Like it's, it's just not that anymore. So that's okay. Yeah. And I Who think cares? that maybe some of those artists were going through the same thing at the same time, you know, around those, cause it's the same, same kind of age, I guess, really. No, it it is very true. Okay. So I feel like this is a, probably a, a good place for us to, to wrap up and maybe, sure time to move on over for our fresh content segment. Now, every week on the show, we discuss our favorite piece of music content for the week, and we always like to start with the guest. So, Leroy, what do you have for us? Yeah, so right, well, I listen to a lot of records just because of uh, the radio show that I do. Um, okay, well, there's two two things. So, does fresh content have to be like new stuff? No. Okay. Um, there's a tune that I heard last week that just kind of knocked me on my ass from a, a live, well, it's kind of live, but it's Nick Cave by himself. The record's called Idiot Prayer, and it's him by himself at Alexandra Palace. And I was listening to this record, and this song came on called Palaces of Montezuma. It kind of just had this feeling of something that I'd heard, like, like a war, an old pair of slippers, like just this really comforting thing. And I didn't even know the tune, um, but it has like this beautiful refrain in it. So I looked it up and it's actually from a Grinderman record, which is his side project yeah. with Warren Ellis and some other guys. Um, so that I thought was really beautiful and worthy of listening to. I played it on the end of my radio show. I played the Grinderman song 
And then I played the solo song right after it and people wrote me and they're just like, thank you for doing that. That was so beautiful. Oh, amazing. Um, so it was really cool. Now, the uh, this other tune that like this week, I've just listened to it about a hundred times. Like a lot of old records I come to later in life just because there's so much music to wade through. Do you know who else does that? Mark Maron. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child from, which record is that from? I guess that's from, oh, Electric Ladyland. I just am obsessed with it right now. It's so fucking good. And it just has this abandon, reckless abandon with the way Hendrix played that... I don't know. Like it always was like Jimi Hendrix, classic rock. You know, I just yeah that always uh, that happens. A lot of uh, artists artists of uh, that generation, yeah. I think, gets lumped in. I mean, especially yeah. for later generations. Like I, I have I'm Gen X, and I have um, millennial friends who are just like the Beatles. Shut up, they suck. You know, because for yeah. that same reason, like they're <laughs> yeah. just like it's always something yeah. I heard. Yeah, but when you actually listen to it, and so listening to this recording of Voodoo Child, not only was it like very cutting edge with the way they mixed it and they did the um, the panning of the guitars and stuff when you listen to it, it's just like the way he plays is so fucking punk rock and rock and roll and you can tell that it's just so imperfect but also beautiful. And, you know, like all my whole life, all I heard like as a peripheral guitar player was like Jimi Hendrix the way he plays guitar until you actually go like holy fuck like nobody plays guitar like that you know like you think of guitar players like Stevie Ray Vaughan and who like amazing guitar player but not even in the same sphere as Hendrix like it's just it's Hendrix is so fucking gnarly is really the only thing I can use to describe it whereas like whereas like Stevie Ray is like perfect and beautiful like Hendrix is gnarly he's more precise yeah yeah, yeah. no and I, I I like I don't like technically good yeah I like it to be all over yeah, the place feel right? so anyway yeah. and how I turned to it was I was at a wake the other day and it was this really like kind of like quintessential island cover band playing at this wake and they ripped into voodoo child and I was just like and it was like an okay version and whatever <laughs> but like there was something about it that was just like, Jesus Christ almighty, like this is fucking insane. Like this song is so gnarly. And it's like, you know, you got like Nanaimo dad with the like white puffy Nikes slaying on his bass. But I'm just like the essence of of that Hendrix tune, Voodoo Child, was so damn good that I it forced me the next day to like listen to it. And I just listened to it over and over again. I love that. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm, where I like I'm when at right now. That's, yeah. That's what about you? What are you listening to? So yeah. So my fresh content is also not super new, um, but it's a it's a song that came out this year at least. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it's kind of like the melancholy of autumn, or you know maybe the fact mm. that I just spent ten days in Lethbridge. Um, yeah. But it's kind of a nostalgic song, and it's Lucy Dacus's song "Hot and Heavy." Do you know it? Uh, no, I don't. I but I just kind of heard of her. For the first time in the summer, working at the record store. Yeah. So I probably heard it. And it's and amazing. It- it's uh, okay. It's, it's basically it, it's like one of those songs that when you like a song, you just play it over and over again, like you did with your song. Basically, yeah. that's what I, I've just been yeah. over listening to it over and over again. And I don't know. I think it's it's a super nostalgic song. It makes you think about your youth uh, and also kind of all the different versions of yourself. You know, like mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, it's it's beautiful. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah, the lyrics are great. 
musically fantastic. Anyway, highly recommend it. Lucy Degas, hot and heavy. Yeah, good. Nice, nice pick. I'm going to check that out. Okay. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to plug bef- before we we go? Do you want to tell people where they can find your album? Or well, you can find it in all the places that you normally can. <laughs> you know, we've got a um, a live concert coming up on um, what's it called? Uh, um, what's Dan Mangan's uh, the streaming platform? Oh, the Oh my God, we're both going to not remember because we're old, yeah. right? Is that what's happening right yeah. now? That we can't remember it's it? Called... Uh, and I'm going to pull it up right Sofa, now. Because Sofa, Kate just sent no, me. what is that? Side door access. <laughs> so we've got a live uh, side door access concert coming up, playing the tunes from Dystopian Weekends. And so it's available for everybody around the world to stream at side door access. So I'm stoked for that. Other than that, that's about it. I'm, I'm uh, laying low for the winter. Right on. Well, I hope you have yeah. a good rest of your day. And thanks again. For, for being a part of the show. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate it. Anything for you, buddy. Aw, thanks, Leroy. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Well, that was such a good conversation, and I, I really hope you enjoyed it. And thanks again to Leroy for coming on the show. And I also want to make a correction and say that he actually has 12 albums and not 11, as I stated during the interview. (laughs) You know, if I would have just looked at the many press releases that I have written about his new album, then maybe I would have gotten it right. But, you know, why would I do that? It makes no sense. Anyway, it's really quite astounding how I managed to get that wrong, which is why I'm doing a correction, because I feel like a total idiot. Anyway. Thanks so much for listening to the FM Podcast. If you like the show, please tell your friends and give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us on the podcast app and it's super easy to do. So head on over, give us five stars and tell us what you like about the show. We'd really appreciate it. The FM Podcast is produced by Fritz Media with editing assistance from Carla J. If you want to learn more about Fritz Media, check out our website at fritzmedia.ca. And you can follow us on Facebook, we're at Fritz Media, and on Instagram and Twitter, at Fritz underscore media. And if you want to learn more about the podcast, go to thefmpodcast.com. A big thank you, as always, to Said the Whale for providing the theme music of the show, and you can find them at saidthewhale.com. Okay, so we're going to go out with our song of the week this week, which, of course, is from Leroy Stagger. This is his latest single, How Do You Love With a Broken Heart. How do you live with a broken heart? You just do How do you feel when it's taken away from you? They tell me not to drink, they tell me not to fight They don't see what I feel in the night How do you love with a broken heart? You just do It's this broken world that set me to think this way Now I used to have a home, now she's saying that I can stay The ghosts come quick through no fault of mile I kill them with the bottle, I kill them with the stone It's this broken world that set me 
on my trigger, giving names to the songs I won't ever sing. But mama wasn't around, my daddy spoke in fits. Prone to fits of rage, you couldn't take much more of this. Headed out on her own in the streets of rage. She lived like a child, busting out of a cage. Your mama wasn't around, my daddy spoke of it. Go knock, 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 She go knock, 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 I'll see you next Tuesday.